So today we're going to look at the last vision of Ezekiel. This is in chapter 40, Ezekiel chapter 40. And uh, there's no way that I will be able to read through this entire ordeal because this spans eight chapters. This is a long, uh, a long vision. So what we will end up doing, we'll just kind of take some snippets from it and talk about that and talk about what they mean. So starting in Ezekiel 40, and uh, I'll just read the first verse or two, and we'll talk about it in a minute. It says, uh, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and sat me down on a very high mountain, which was a structure like a city to the south. Now, Ezekiel and all the people were still in exile when this happened. Uh, And note that it says that this is the 25th year of our exile, he said. The very first vision we read in Ezekiel happened five years after the exile. Uh, If we were to go back and look at that. So that means that this is happening 20 years later. Uh, It's been a full 20 years since he had that original first vision. And uh, so it's been a long time, you know, and he's been preaching and he's been prophesying and trying to tell the people, uh, this is what's going to happen. This is what's coming for you. But this, you know, there's also been glimmers of hope in his preaching, too, as he tells the people. It hasn't been all horror, you know. It's, it's been some good. And here, uh, of course, last week we talked about the Valley of Dry Bones and how that was a was kind of a, a hopeful message ultimately you know the dead will rise and and there will be resurrection and uh that was an important i think one of the one of the most important prophecies because it 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 takes us into resurrection you know into the into the theme of resurrection that we see so much in the new testament which is which is so important so here we are 20 minutes uh, 20 years later after after ezekiel's first vision the king is Jehoiakim. And uh, Jehoiakim uh, had, uh, had been an exile king with the people and been there too. And he'd been led in exile. And Jehoiakim was Israel's last uh, king, or Judah's last king uh, that they ever uh, had on the throne, really. Uh, this, he was the final one. And uh, so, but he went there and he lived in Babylon with them, you know, during this time. And, you, you know, you read about him uh, earlier on in, in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter one. But it's interesting that Jehoiakim, who's still kind of, you know, I guess you could say he's probably looked upon as the people's king, even in exile to some extent. Uh, he, he's honored. Okay, let me put it that way. He's honored. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, raised someone else up, you know, instead of him. But Jehoiakim would still have had a place of honor, I think. Uh, Jehoiakim 
is actually in the in the uh, uh, what's the word? Well, he's an ancestor of Jesus uh, through Joseph. He's one of Joseph's ancestors. He's mentioned in Matthew 1, chapter 11. And even though he was not considered a good king, uh, he was a king that didn't do too well and none of his sons took the throne. Uh, He's still uh, in Joseph's ancestry in Matthew 1, chapter 11, which I think is interesting. So... um, so what does it say? It says in the 25th year, he reads on, the hand of the Lord was upon me. We talked about this a little bit last week, how, how it's very important to have the hand of the Lord on you. That's the way that the Spirit of God, God uses that for the Spirit of God to be on someone. We lay hands on people when we ordain them to the ministry uh, in the same way. I'm sure you had hands laid on you when you ordained Nick. Uh, when we ordain elders here, we lay hands on them. Uh, we lay hands on the sick when we want to pray for them. Uh, this is something that Scripture teaches us to do. And so when somebody's hand is laid on you, there's, there's a meaning there. There's a physical meaning there. And I believe God uses that for his purposes. Uh, and it's often used during the act of anointing, during the act of consecration, during the act of ordination, and during the act of healing, all four of those cases. Uh, and sometimes there's people, you know, there are uh, stories of people who, you know, just having, just having someone reach out and lay their hands on them and touch them, you know, will sometimes lift someone up, will sometimes give them hope, uh, will sometimes, if they're in a, in a bout of depression or if they're suffering, or whatever. Sometimes that act alone will have a huge impact on someone. Uh, that someone's willing to reach out and just put their hand on them. Uh, that means a lot because it, it, it communicates just like Jesus did with the leper. You know, it's like you're not too unclean. You're not too unclean for uh, for me to lay my hands on you and for for the Spirit of God to be used in this way. So. Anybody, anybody have any thoughts on that? Any questions? Answering two things from plan in, in, the, in the theater, when you're working on blocking and, and relationship, the character relationship and so forth. Okay. There's, you, know, you have a personal space, and you have to be very careful when you penetrate that space. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so, because it has deep meaning mm-hmm. when, you, when you go through that. So, if I put my hand on someone in a yeah. play or something like mm-hmm. that, that, that is significant. Right, right. That makes sense. So you have to be, you have to really be wise. Judiciously, yeah. Yeah, when when you're you're dealing with it. The other other thing, I've I've noticed this a number of times, especially with Hispanic women, that if there's children around, even if they're children not their own, it's all they 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 want to touch their head. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I see, like, my kids walk by, they just kind of wait. Huh, yeah. Briefly touch their head. Right. I, I just always thought that maybe they're just, Trying to put out a blessing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. In their own way, that's right. You know, kind we of a sneaky way of getting. It, you know, yeah, <laughs> right. As elders, we do it too when we when we have kids come up that haven't been baptized. You know, we'll lay our hands on them and bless them usually. So, so yeah, I think it's there's. Important thing. It is. You're right. It sure is. Penetrating yeah. personal space. Right. 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 That's a good way to put it. Penetrating personal space. Yeah. 
want to say too, you know, I brought this up last week message, and we'll talk about it a little bit even today, but it's, it's just that addition to the idea that our, our, our faith is incarnational, right? Yeah. That, that we were created in a body for a body, and Christ came to the body. There's the intentionality mm-hmm. behind the sensory idea, or the sensory touch and smell and taste and everything else mm-hmm. faith right. makes it tangible. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's almost like you're when you do that with someone who's sick or you know, or whatever, you're adding a way for them to sense you because you're you're filling the need for them to feel your hand, you know, and and so they can see you, they can hear you. Hopefully, you know, they can they can they may can smell you, you know, <laughs> and but they uh, uh, but they you know they can't feel your presence unless you touch them, unless you reach out and take their hand or lay your hands on the shoulder or their head or whatever. It can be bad or good too, you know, because sure, sure. you lay your hand on them? Exactly, yeah, yeah. It could be a it could be a bad thing, that's right. All right, so in this case the hand of the Lord was on Ezekiel and it says that he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on very high mountain. Now, I don't think he physically went there because it says that in uh, in visions of God, he took me there, and that tells me that he this is all a vision. He's seeing he's seeing Israel. He's seeing Jerusalem uh, in a vision. Uh, so he wasn't like teleported there. I don't think he's having a vision here. Um, in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and sat me down on a very high mountain, which was a structure like a city to the south. In verse 3, when he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. Well, who does that sound like? We, somebody we, know, we all know, right? You know. <laughs> so, he's either Christ... Or he's one, or he's a messenger from Christ. One of the two, that's for sure. Uh, so, uh, I, I, he, I think it's probably Christ, uh, but uh, it could be him. It could be his messenger. It doesn't really matter. Uh, this is a representative of Jesus for sure, and uh, he's he's got the bronze, uh, which is often described, often describes Christ in glory, and there's the element of linen with him too, which also often is described with Christ in glory, uh, whether it's a linen garment or, or whatnot. He's, uh, there's this linen cord. In this case, he's carrying a measuring stick. He's carrying a, a, a big, long yardstick. And, uh, and he's here to show Ezekiel something. He's here to show Ezekiel the rebuilt Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And... Uh, so he tells him, he says, uh, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and shut your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Okay. Um, now, this takes us into another part of this study. Does anybody have any more comments or anything before I get into that? Because we're going to get into more, a little bit more technical stuff here. Anybody? Before we move on. Are you going to talk about 47-1 at all? 
47? Yeah, chapter 47? He had mentioned this whole division of like eight chapters, which would include, I think, 47. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing goes up to 44. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about 47. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, the water and all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah That's we're, the place. The 47 one is the place where I mentioned to you. It looks like it's a first person view. Yeah, good point. It makes good point. Me think Jesus Christ. Here, yeah, yeah. Temple, that's know. a great. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. We will Which definitely get to that. You were thinking this, mm-hmm. and there's right. a measuring that goes on at chapter forty-seven. Also, that's right. That's right. No, that's great. That's great. Well, let me let me uh, let me start by saying this, uh, and and this is not going to be news to most everybody in this room. Everybody's heard this. If, particularly if you've been raised around any teaching by Walton Pedelford, you're gonna you're gonna have been exposed to this. But there's generally throughout history uh, four ways of reading scripture, uh, or four ways of interpreting scripture, and they're all four valid. Uh, one is to read it literally or historically. In other words, where the Bible said that so and so. Israelites went and smote the people of so-and-so, Philistines or whatever. Literally happened, historically happened. Uh, you know, we believe that we're reading history when we read that. We read that that literally happened. Uh, the next way of reading Scripture is to read it morally. What does it have to say about us about the way we live? What does it have to say about us and how it affects us morally? Uh, is this have a message for us morally? The third thing is what they would call typological or connections between the Old and the New Testament. Now, we do this all the time, whether we realize it or not. Uh, when, we, when we talk about the book of Jonah and Jonah being spit out in the belly of the whale for three days, and we're like, wow, that really reminds me of the fact that Jesus was in the tomb for three days and was resurrected. Well, that's a perfect example of typological uh, uh, reading of that passage, of reading it as a connection between the Old and New Testament. That's exactly what you're doing there. And the fourth way of reading is to read it eschatologically. In, in other words, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our future? What is God trying to tell us for the future, for the end? Well, Ezekiel's got all these elements in this in this passage, in these eight chapters. Uh, for some of us, me being raised in a in a pretty basic, you know, no frills, but I'm not knocking them. I, I love my upbringing. Uh, SBC Church, growing up, uh, we had a whole lot of the historical reading of, of of the Bible. We had a whole lot of moral reading of the Bible. We didn't have much of the typological and we didn't have much of the eschatological. The only time we had the eschatological is when we read Revelation or you know, Matthew 24 or something like that. So, but uh, the typological or connecting the Old Testament with New Testament and things like that, that was, that was something we didn't do a lot of growing up. You know, the Old Testament was its own thing. The New Testament was its own thing. The Old Testament led to Christ coming. That's really about all it was worth. Nobody ever said that, but I'm just saying that's kind of the way, you know, it, it was never looked at really beyond that. Uh, and so um, the more I think you really get into Scripture and the more you read it and the more you study it, you find all four elements are there. 
in, in Scripture in many cases. Not every case. You know, not every case is meant to be more than a historical reading. You know, not every case is meant to be more than a moral reading. When Paul says in the epistles, you know, do this, act this way, uh, he, that's a moral reading. That's, that's, he's talking about, generally, he's, that's to be read morally, you know, in that, in that interpretation when he's telling you how to live. So, but there are plenty of passages that do incorporate all four, incorporate one or more of them. Well, this passage, um, you can read literally historically, but we already know that it's a vision. We already know that God's giving, giving Ezekiel a vision, so we have to assume that there's more here going on than just something he's seeing as a literal event. That doesn't mean that it won't be a literal event, but in the moment he's seeing this, he's having a vision. So... And the more we get into this, we realize it becomes more clear that this is a typological uh, teaching as well. This also, I believe, is a representation or a Ezekiel's view of the New Jerusalem that we see in heaven. Even though he goes into a lot more detail about measurements and chambers of the temple and so forth in his in his. Uh, uh, talking about it than Revelation does. So um, so this man with the, the bronze that looks like bronze and has the, the linen cord or the flax cord as some translations translate it takes him and shows him all the measurements of these things and rather than reading through all the measurements which I'm not going to do because we just simply don't have time to do that this morning um, I'm just going to kind of hit some high points. And one you see um you see um, elements going on here. You see the east gate to the outer gate. And actually the, the uh, headings in my Bible make a pretty good representation of this. The east gate and the outer day, uh, gate, or court, excuse me, the east gate and the outer court. And then he shows him the outer court. Then he shows him the north gate and the south gate. And then they get to the inner court. Okay. Um. So let's, let's read a little bit about how the church fathers saw all this because I think it's important. Jerome and Gregory the Great had a lot to say about this passage. They were the most, uh, at least in the ancient Christian commentary, they're the ones that commented the most uh, about... Gregory was especially a good one. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, so Gregory the Great uh, says that in Holy Scripture, those things that can be accepted according to the history are very frequently to be understood spiritually so that faith in the truth of history is retained and spiritual understanding is derived from the mysteries of allegory. Now this, he's, he, uh, he touches on a truth there that I think, I know I've harped on many times, but I'm going to just mention it one more time. And that's that... Uh, there's history, and that history means more than history, but that doesn't mean it's not history. Uh, be, just because the Bible says that something happened, uh, just because some liberal scholar says, well, that's symbolic, that, that should be interpreted symbolic, does not mean that we don't also take it historically, okay, if we, if we feel like that's the way it's to be taken. 
like poetry can be based on real historical events. It can be, yeah. But I'm really thinking more about things like, you know, you'll have, you'll have just as an example pulled out of my head. I mean, I've heard some people say that, uh, well, God didn't really rain fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. That was just a figurative story, you know. Well, why, why not? You know, why can't it be both? Why can't it be a literal event and also it's a figurative story? Well, because he's got something to teach us in that, you know, in that event. So I think God uses historical events to teach us things today, you know, in the Bible. So our tendency in, in modern scholarship is it's always got to be an either-or scenario. It's always got to be historical event or it's got to be symbolic. And I think that's wrong in many cases. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that there are cases that are obviously only symbolic. The parables, you know, that's symbolic, uh, things like that. But, but I think some of it's also historical, you know. That's just my opinion, you know. Um, the uh, ancients mm-hmm. called this a four-pronged four, four approach, a quadriga. Okay. That's what the, uh, that was the name of a chariot that is driven by four horses. So they adopted that for this approach. You know, gotcha. about the chariot, the quadriga, it didn't work right unless it had four horses. Mm. So if mm-hmm. you leave one of the horses out, yeah. chances are good your, your, your theology is not going to yeah. work right. <laughs> right, right. You really need all four. Yeah, yeah. Well, the church fathers like Gregory the Great and... Uh, uh, if y'all are, if y'all are, if y'all are warm, feel free to turn those AC units up. I see some fanning in the room, so whatever. Yeah, I, I turn the fans down. Okay. You know, okay. For the noise. Okay. If, 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 I can I can be really loud if you need me to. <laughs> um. So um. Where were we? Oh, so the church fathers like Gregory the Great and uh, uh, Jerome. They, they were all in on interpreting this passage figuratively because they believed it had a lot to tell us. And there's some things we're going to run into that make that pretty clear that, that, it's, that there's figurative. There's things about eschatology in there and there's things, about, uh, there's things that are analogical or that teach us about Christ <coughs> or in the New Testament. All right, so he's taken to... A mountain. We have this man with the measuring rod, who the who the church fathers tend to interpret as Christ, or or at the very least a messenger from Christ, an angel. And so, uh, the church fathers are pretty much clear about that. But let me read some of the things the church fathers say that kind of give you a sense of where they're coming from on this. Uh, so let's look at the outer court in verse 17. Um, the entry, this is from Gregory the Great. The entry of the temple reveals many mysteries. Entry itself is eternal life. And the preacher is a gate. For, the, for we must persevere in the life of the faith, spurred on by the hope and charity. To interpret involves moving from history into allegory with the with the aid of the Old and New Testaments. That's Gregory the Great speaking. Um, So he would say the gate of entry is analogous to preaching. Gregory the Great, each preacher can be understood under the name gate 
because whoever opens for us the door of the heavenly kingdom through his speech is in effect a gate. Uh, he interprets the, ver- the steps through the gate as virtues. We must not be surprised if the steps are from virtue to virtue when each very virtue is, as it were, increased by certain steps and thereby led through increases of merits to the heights. That way he gave that on his homilies on Ezekiel. Um, let, me re- let me find some other examples. Let's see. Verse 40, verse um, 11, we read, uh, Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gateway, 13 cubits. There was a barrier between the side rooms, one cubit on each side, and the side rooms were six cubits on each side. Um, so Gregory the Great, so with, so with grace supervising, supervening, through the New Testament, every faithful people knows that one God to be the Trinity, and by their recognition of him, they have fulfilled the virtue of the Decalogue. So he sees he sees all, even the steps, even the entries of the temple to represent the virtues of the Christian life. And this is, this is, uh, this is Christian mysticism, folks. This is what, if you get in and you read things like Teresa of Avila, uh, and you read some of the other mystics, uh, this is the kind of thing you're going to read. This is very, very similar to what early Christianity saw nature as well. Uh, if they saw a, a bird, uh, trying to think of just an example off the top of my head, if they saw a bird returning to its nest year after year, they would see a spiritual significance in that. And why not? God created the birds. Why not? It's only in our modern, modern uh, post-enlightenment way of thinking that we can't wrap our brain around the idea that these things have spiritual significance too. Things like the birds returning to the nest year after year. God programmed that into every animal, all these things into all creation whether it be the, the grass coming back and the trees and leaves coming back after, after every winter in the spring. Uh, my opinion is God did that as a picture of revelation. Or, or excuse me, uh, not revelation. Resurrection. Uh, resurrection. Yeah, that's the word before. My opinion is that's a picture of resurrection. We're to learn from that. We're to be encouraged by those things and see those things. Uh, if you're not, you're missing out on something that creation was meant to be for us, in my personal opinion. And very, very few people, I think, see the world that way, unfortunately, nowadays, because we've been taught not to. We've only been taught it through science divorced from uh, theology and from, from godliness. Imagination, that's right, yeah. So, uh, and, and science has its value, I mean, Science, in my opinion, if done right, is simply a way to study the way that God has set things up. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when science leads you away from from uh, God and you lose track of the fact that God is the purpose behind all this. That's when science runs amok and you have a problem, you know, as most scientists do probably nowadays. So. Well, 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whatever. <laughs> All right. So let's read on. Um, so he has these visions of the temple. I'm going to I'm going to move ahead a little bit because there's several elements I want to point out here that are very very important in these eight chapters. Uh, for one, the the first element that we've already touched on are the gates. He sees the gates of Jerusalem, and these gates are for various things. Um, and the gates were always very important in the old temple too, because you had some gates that were for certain things and so forth, and some gates were never open and some were. So you have the gates, and then in verse... Uh, let me find it. Okay, let's, let's talk about verse 43 for a minute. This is very... Chapter 43, excuse me. This is very important. So skip ahead to, verse, to chapter 43. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. Sounds just like Revelation, doesn't it? And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision I had seen by the Chibar Canal. You remember, that's what he described the vision, the first one. They were by the Chibar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Verse 6, when the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. All right, so what's going on here? I believe that Ezekiel is hearing the voice of God from his throne room. And uh, I believe that, that the man that has brought Ezekiel to the place of God is Christ. Because that's what Christ does. Christ brings his people to God. He brings them to the place where God is, and he intervenes on our behalf. Um, and so God is speaking to Ezekiel. says, this is the place of my throne place of the soles of my feet and I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever but this isn't just any earthly temple this is the temple this is the temple of the new Jerusalem the temple of that is to come uh, and we know this because the temple that was built uh, when uh, you know when they tried to sort of rebuild sort of a temple that was nothing like the old one it was raised in 70 A.D. We all know that history, right? So that, his, that temple didn't last, and it's not there to this day. So that temple got wiped out. So this is obviously talking about a different temple. This is talking about a temple, the temple in the end times, I think, the temple of, of the holy city. And God is saying, this is, this is where my throne room is, as he speaks to Ezekiel. And Christ is there, and has brought Ezekiel to this place to meet and hear the voice of God. It's a beautiful picture. Um, and then he goes into things that, how things are changing, things have changed and so forth. In verse 10, as for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design and make known to them as well as its statutes and whole design and its laws, 
or write it down in their sight. Now we're about to we're about to see another figure come into play. And that is in verse 44, or chapter 44, excuse me, I keep saying verse. Chapter 44, we have a new figure coming into the scene who's called the prince. The prince. So in verse four, in chapter 44, he says, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be open, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, is entered by it. Therefore, it remains shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate. He shall go out by the same way. So here we have a prince mentioned now in Ezekiel. Now, this is something new. Um, who is this prince? Well, the prince is a son of the king, right? I think the prince refers to Christ. And so this is a, this is a messianic figure. This is, this is Christ as this prince because this prince can come and go as he chooses through the gate. He can go from the presence of God out of the temple to the people of God. And that means the prince goes between the people and God, you see, which is exactly what Christ does on our behalf. He intercedes for us between us and God. That's, that's what he does. He takes our petitions to Almighty God. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. That's the meaning. Yes. Uh huh. He's a man. That's right. Yeah. Right. Right. He's a man. He's not a a spirit being. That's right. One of one of the hints that this is looking forward to uh, the arrival of the kingdom of God is that he's called a prince. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not the conquering king. Right. He's the prince of peace. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so you know everything is settled at this point. Mm hmm. Go backwards a little bit. Um, this guy with the measuring stick and the cord. I think the cord is usually taken to be a plumb line. Okay. So he's making judgments as he's doing this measuring. Good point. He's making sure everything is right and straight. Mm-hmm. So it's really all a matter of um, uh, judging the rightness of this this structure. Right. And he finds it's perfect. You know, the the uh, dimensions of it are a cube. Mm-hmm. Which is what the holy place was. Mm-hmm. It's what the New Jerusalem is. That's right, coming from the sky. Yeah. So I, th- I think Ezekiel is seeing that same vision that John saw right. of, of Definitely. New Jerusalem, the, yeah. the, you know, which is the bride of, of bridegroom, which is the church. Right. <laughs> so, right. So the perfection of the church. Is Amen. Yeah. Here, and and the church being the temple. Right. The dwelling place right. of God. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So this is this is there's figurative language here. You know, we, we look at this figuratively. Now, does that mean there's not literally going to be a physical New Jerusalem coming out of heaven? Yeah, very well, maybe probably is. But but we have to look at this figuratively, too, as to what it says about the church and about Christ. So that's the prince. And he talks about the prince several times. Um there's a holy district that is set for the prince, all right, later. And uh, in verse four, in chapter 46, let me read a little of that. That's important. Says the, the, this says the Lord God, the gate of the inner court that faces east 
shall be shut on six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be open. Uh, verse 2, The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths <coughs> and on the new moons. The burnt offerings that the priest offers to the Lord on the Sabbath shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. Uh, six lambs, six being the number of man, right? So you got six lambs. Six is the number of man. Uh, I think that's important. The, priest, the, the prince is a man. And uh, he is effectively being described here as going and making petitions, in this case via sacrifice, before Almighty God on behalf of the people. So no longer are they relying on priests, on Levitical priests, although that's mentioned here too at one point, but they're not relying on priests in the same sense that Israel did. They're relying on this Messianic prince to come and do what he does. And of course, because the six lambs are the number of man, well, he's the sacrifice. He's the man, you see. Uh, the number of man. He's, he is the six lambs uh, blem- without blemish. Uh, and so uh, he, is, he goes before God Almighty and is the sacrifice before the people on behalf of the people. Now there's a prince involved. There wasn't a prince involved before. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you have a prince that goes and does this. This is a whole new thing. And so this is, this is what we're seeing. Verse 40, uh, chapter 47. Let's talk about that. We've got just a few more minutes. And this is, uh, Greg brought this up. This is another reason we know that this is figurative to some degree. Water... He brought me back to the door of the temple and water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south south by the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces the out toward the east and behold the water was trickling down the south side. Uh, going on eastward with a measuring line, the man measured a thousand cubits. He led me through the water. It was ankle deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water. And it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, led me through the water, and it was waist deep, getting deeper and deeper. As he measured a thousand, it was a river that I could not pass through. Now it's over his head. Uh, again, he measured a thousand. It was a river I could not pass through for the, through for the water had risen I was deep enough to swim in it, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other side. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swims will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there 
that the waters of the sea may become fresh so that everything will live where the water goes. Fishermen will stand by the sea. Fishermen will stand beside, from Engedi to Englaim, if I'm saying that right. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be very many kinds like the fish of the great sea. Now, if you ask me, this is a picture of Christ teaching us to be fishers of men. You yeah. say that's if that's. I, yeah, go ahead. I didn't hear you say <coughs> right side of the house in verse one. Uh huh. The King James translation. Let me read it again. Sure. What it gives here are three points of reference, and they. I think that shows it's a first person view. It says, afterward he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, water is issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. Mm. That makes me think of Christ on the cross when he was struck in the sky. Yeah. Mm. Blood and water came out. Right, right. It goes on, for the forefront of the house stood toward the east. You visualize looking towards the east from a first person view. And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Hmm. That's three points of reference that show a first-person view. And, you know, being water issuing yeah. forth from the altar, right. you know, and then Jesus on the cross, it just makes me to think that that's a picture of yeah, Christ. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. So, did Absolutely. your translation not say south side? Uh, right, right side? What verse was that? Verse 1. Then he, then he brought me to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. That's all it says. Oh, I take that back. The water was flowing down from below the south end. So yeah, it's there. But of the threshold. The right side of the house. <coughs> no, it says for the temple faced east. The this water. Is not in italics on, in the King James translation. Okay. Okay. It uses east, right side, and south side. Okay. Okay. All three. Yeah. And yours doesn't have that. Well, not that exact wording. ESV. So not that exact wording, but I think we're I think we're pretty close. Well, the, south, the south side would be the right side, so they're just they just they translate the same way. Yeah, it gets my attention. If, if you're I'll say that <laughs> if it's not in italics here, that means there's a Hebrew word. Yeah. for each of those three points of reference. Yeah, I think two points of reference. You could argue, well, it's a third person view. But this is a first-person view, and I think yeah. it may be a big deal. I agree with that. Yeah, so I, I agree I, with that. I've yeah. been looking at it for a few years. Yeah. And we'll have to check the. the we'll have to check the Hebrew on that. That you may already have. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I have not actually. Okay, but that that would be a good thing to do. There is one other thing I want to point out uh, in closing, and that's verse twelve of forty-seven. It says, "On the banks of both sides of the river, there will be all kinds of trees for food." Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food for the leaves of healing. Does anybody recognize a New Testament reference to that too? Revelation 22. Uh Uh, Just flat out. I mean, almost the same thing. Uh, Let's see. It's 22... Uh, one through three it says then the angel showed me the river of the water of life this is John now okay uh, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river the tree of life that's 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So that's flat out, I mean, they're seeing the same thing. I mean, there's no doubt they're seeing the same thing, so, which is amazing. So.